Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1987, and we're talking about an extremely personal film that talks about hoe cakes, black bats, and the U.S. Postal Service. The movie... Hollywood Shuffle. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. Welcome to Unspooled, where we unspool the greatest films to see if they are classics or... Just remembered that way. I'm Amy Nicholson. I'm a film critic who writes for the New York Times. And I am Paul Shear, and I have once been in the New York Times, uh, but I had to write the article <laughs> myself. Um, Amy, today we're talking about a film that really affected my childhood, Robert Townsend's Hollywood Shuffle. I remember falling in love with this movie and this guy because... It was a genuinely really funny movie. And I have to say, not having seen it in years, it holds up. This movie is still very, very funny. It just celebrated its 35th anniversary. A Criterion uh, edition is on its way. And Amy, we're going to really talk about not only this film, but how it affected the future in so many different ways. I am very excited to get into this conversation, Paul. This is going to be this is going to be really great. Absolutely. So, without any further ado, let's unspool it. The year is 1987, and Robert Townsend is a 30-year-old actor who has been trying to make it in movies forever. When he was a teenager studying theater in Chicago, he landed a two-line part in a movie we covered a couple years ago, Cooley High. He's a guy in the gym who's going to kick the hero's ass. I don't know, man. Yeah, man, we didn't say nothing. Somebody ought to kick y'all ass. Don't worry. Stoney Robert gonna do just that when they get out of jail. Chump. After that, Robert got into comedy, moved to L.A. with his buddy Keenan Ivory Waynes, got a small role in a movie called A Soldier Story with another new theater actor, Denzel Washington, and kept auditioning and waiting for better roles to come, and they didn't. Here's him talking about this time in his life with Alex Haley, the author of Roots. Well, Hollywood Shuffle... Um was born out of uh, frustrations as an actor. Uh, I came to Hollywood from Chicago, and uh, I found myself auditioning for slaves, pimps, basketball players, junkies. And uh, I found that that was the only parts that I was going to be allowed to play as an artist. Mm -hmm. So rather than... uh, uh, At that time, I had done a film called A Soldier's Story, Mm -hmm. and I had done another film called Streets of Fire. And rather than sit around and complain, I took what money I had in the bank at the time and said, I'm going to make a movie. And so I got my uh, friends together and actors that I had auditioned against and with for different parts. And I said, we're going to make a movie. And so I took all my savings out of the bank and started to make this movie and shot these little vignettes. So that movie he's referring to is Hollywood Shuffle, a movie that he directed and starred in and co-wrote with the comedy friend that he drove out to L.A. with, Keenan Ivory Wayans. Making this movie was not easy. It's vaguely autobiographical. Robert plays Bobby, a young black actor who's auditioning for this jive-talking criminal role that might launch his career, even though he finds the role humiliating. 
his girlfriend, his mom, his grandma, his younger brother, they all want him to succeed, but even they quietly know that the role just sucks. And Bobby is not exceptional in facing this dilemma of, you know, do I do a sellout role in order to further my career? And the movie makes it clear that this is a widespread problem with sketches like Black Acting School that hold up this student as an example of success. Let's talk to a graduate. This is Ricky Taylor. Ricky graduated from my class three years ago. Ricky, can you tell us what you've been doing since you've graduated? Well, Robert, I've played nine crooks, four gang leaders, two dope dealers. I played a rapist twice. Whoa. <laughs> that was fun. But currently, I, I'm filming a prison movie. I play this tough con that tries to fuck this new inmate. That sounds wonderful. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> Need I say any more? It's Hollywood's first black acting school. Hollywood Shuffle was released on March 20th, 1987. It cost just $100,000, 40000 of which were put on his credit cards. That's right. Robert Townsend funded this movie on credit card fees. But the movie was a success. It made over $5 million at the box office and got Robert Townsend an Indie Spirit nomination. Robert went on to direct more expensive movies, and his co-writer, Keenan Ivory Waynes, went on to make In Living Color. But this film still feels like their most personal and special project. It's the one that helped inspire a generation of filmmakers and is just now getting a new Criterion release. And it's still really, really funny. So what was on the radio that week of March 20th, 1987? Well, the number one song on the Billboard charts is a song that I have heard a million times, but I never knew the name of the band who made it. They were called Club Nouveau, and this track won them a Grammy for Best R&B Song. Club Nouveau aspired to be a socially conscious band, and you can really see that in the video for this song. It's a montage of people dancing that takes care to reference earlier Black film artists like Oscar Michaud and the tap-dancing Nicholas Brothers, who we are big fans of on this on this podcast. So this song, which you will recognize, is Club Nouveau and their version of the Bill Withers classic, Lean On Me. Lean on me, we are not strong, and I'll be your friend, I'll help you carry on, for it won't be long, till I'm gonna need somebody to lean on, just call Club Nouveau. I didn't know that that was even a band that existed. I Wow. Okay. I'm going to go deeper into the uh, the catalog of Club Nouveau. Yeah. I was like, I've always heard that song on the radio and I've always known it was a remake, but I never really put it together. Who remade it? Why? And then I watched the video. I was like, oh, it's so beautiful that this video came out and was number one the week of Hollywood Shuffer because it is a video all about, you know, joy, history, dancing, screen presence that makes clear to say like black film artists have been on screen from the beginning. A lovely little synergy. I want to talk about this movie in the context of history. And I think it's really important to look at it through this lens because this movie was revolutionary. In 1986, the year before this film comes out, Spike Lee releases She's Gotta Have It. That was huge. This is essentially the second independent film made by a young black actor. And what it does and what it inspires uh, is a generation of people to follow in these footsteps. There's independent films that are done on a shoestring budget that are personal. And this film in particular, I think, changes the landscape of comedy in the sense that 86 is Spike Lee, 87 is Hollywood Shuffle. Eddie Murphy sees an early cut of Hollywood Shuffle and is like, Robert Townsend, you're going to direct Raw. And and Keenan Ivory Waynes, you're going to help me write some of Raw. And then, you know, through their collaboration... Eddie Murphy's like, you need to make a black exploitation film. They make I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. And then In Living Color comes after that. And really, the, the machine is really started in these two years of changing the landscape that this movie is lampooning. So when you look at this movie at this time, there might be things that feel like, oh, that's a little bit outdated. Although I'll say, I think a lot of things still feel very relevant. But this movie and this moment in cinema changes like the landscape for black filmmakers in such a major, major way. Yeah. And independent cinema. Cause you're right. I feel like if you, you know, put a, put a Twizzler to somebody's head and you're like, Hey, pop quiz, hot shot. What kickstarted independent films? People would be like Steven Soderbergh, sex lies and videotape at Sundance, which is a few years after this. 
when no, sorry to Soderbergh, who we just talked about last week with Magic Mike, rewind it. Like independent movie is starting already a couple of years way before that with guys putting the movies on their credit card, with guys talking about how they're funding movies from their credit card, with people making stories like Hollywood Shuffle that Hollywood wouldn't make on their own anyways. Hollywood's not going to put money into making Hollywood Shuffle. It has to be like a fully independent original production. The thought of even putting two black actors on film against each other is wild. I mean, it truly is a moment where once a year, and this is a story that Robert Townsend tells, they made a black film and that was it. And when Robert Townsend was in A Soldier Story, like he said to his agent, oh my God, I'm in this movie. It's so big. I, I want to do more parts like that. And they're like, no, that's it. We did it. That You did the one. And now you must wait again for another one like that. And I love this idea that he went forward in this moment in his career where he was feeling incredibly stuck and made this personal film. And I would argue that Samuel Golden Jr., I believe, who bought the film, is very influential in why this movie made $5 million, because he heard Robert Townsend's story. He heard that Robert Townsend had financed this on credit cards. Robert Townsend came to him and said, hey, can I get my check now? And they're like, why? He's like, because uh, my credit card bills are here and I need to pay them off. And they're like, wait, you paid for this on your credit card? And he's like, yes. And he goes like, that's the movie. We need to sell that story. As a young kid, I remember hearing that story more than anything else. They made his journey part of the sales tool for the film. And I think that also, in many respects, to what you're saying, Amy, plays into the entire way that independent film is made and talked about. It's not only what's on screen, but how you got it on screen. Yeah, exactly. And this thing that you're referring to about, you know, his agent being like, just settle one good movie a year. You're that guy who gets to be in the one good movie of a year. I feel like that's also folded into it too. This idea that at this time in the eighties, it was kind of, you know, that idea of people were competing for only one slot. And if you were like a young comedic actor in the eighties, you were just hearing, well, there's already Eddie Murphy, so we don't need you. He has like a full-on nightmare about showing up to an audition and everybody is an Eddie Murphy. There he is. He's the one we want. I, I just want to be me. I, I don't want to be Eddie Murphy. I just want to be me. I, I just want... I just... <coughs> yes. Get the fuck out of here. That's what we're looking for. <coughs> You know what I love about that scene, and I would love to ask him about this someday, is I feel like he took the rhythm of that scene from Pinocchio. Because it reminds me so much of the Disney Pinocchio when they're like on the island of lost boys and the boys are slowly turning into donkeys against their will. <laughs> and they're trying not to laugh like donkeys, but then the donkey laugh is coming out. I feel like that's how he plays that scene. I don't know if that was like a subconscious influence. I don't know if I'm just making it up. I don't know if I just love Pinocchio, but that's that's there for me. It's interesting hearing Robert Townsend talk about that scene because he wanted to put that scene in for exactly what you were saying, this idea of if you were auditioning for anything, people would say they want you to be more like Eddie Murphy. They're looking for the next Eddie Murphy. And he felt like that was an important scene to convey at this time, you know, to show. And, it, and again, putting it in context, like Eddie Murphy at this time is 50 times bigger than Kevin Hart. Right. Like he is the one and only like he is the like the box office superstar. So everyone's trying to fit into this Eddie Murphy mold. And Keenan was like, I don't know if we should do that. I just feel like we don't want to piss anybody off. You know, this movie, I think, does a very good job of not pointing the blame at anyone. It just kind of talks about it in a very general sense. And, you know, I think Keenan's fear in this moment, or at least from what I understand from Robert Townsend, was like, we don't want to like make Eddie Murphy the problem. We don't want to blame Eddie Murphy for us not getting parts. And Robert Townsend really committed to doing it. He's like, I want to do it. Let's do it. They shoot it. And Eddie Murphy calls them and says, hey, I'm hearing about your movie. I want to see it. So they have this private screening for Eddie Murphy. And they're watching the movie. And Eddie Murphy's come in with an entourage and bodyguards. And when that scene comes on, Robert Townsend and Keenan are in the back. And they're just like watching and nervous. And they hear Eddie Murphy's bodyguard go, hey, Ed, they're talking about you. And they're frozen. They don't know what's going to go on because it's like, this is the biggest movie star in the world watching this movie. He could make or break them. And then Eddie just starts laughing so hard. And this is the moment that really, again, like I said earlier, 
changes the course of every one of these guys' history. Like, he really puts them together. And I think that that's such an interesting moment that Eddie Murphy could look at that, have a sense of humor about himself, and then also recognize the talent and what was going on here, not to get offended. Because at that point, Eddie Murphy is the coolest guy in the world. Like, he, everyone wants to be like Eddie Murphy. And I think it's a really interesting moment here where he could laugh at himself and also see it not as a slight, but really in many ways as a compliment. Yeah, you have to like respect the way he handles it, that he doesn't even lean into the, there can only be one. He doesn't all about Eve it. He's not like, I must destroy you. You cannot make fun of me. I'm Eddie Murphy. Like He's like, I see you. I see your humor. I'm folding you into my power. Let's all make raw together. And I think that's a boss move because he could have crushed them. And also just for like extra kind of context at this time, I found a statistic about, you know, about the box office in this year when this came out. And of the 100 big box office stars, there were only five black actors among the top five, 100 biggest box office stars. You had Eddie Murphy up at number 10, and then you had to go all the way down to 46 and it was Whoopi Goldberg. Then Margaret Avery, she's in color purple, Sanford and Son, she's a 62. Then Danny Glover at 76. And then right at the bottom, number 100 was Gregory Hines. And that's it. So not even Denzel Washington at this point. No, not even Denzel yet. He was still just Soldier Story Kid. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Making my cat happy is my number one priority, and Fresh Step Out Stretch Litter helps me do just that. Meet Mr. Mittens. Mitty, for short. Ah! Mitty is happiest when his litter box is clean and fresh, and Fresh Step Out Stretch is amazing at absorbing waste and odor. We sure have found our common ground, haven't we? Happy cat, happy life. Find Fresh Step Out Stretch at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Certain trademarks used under license from the Procter & Gamble Company or its affiliates. This whole idea of building from inside your community is something that was pervasive behind the scenes of this film as well, because Robert Townsend in making this movie did the same thing that Eddie Murphy did to him. He called a lot of the people that he was often seeing at auditions and saying like, hey, um, I think you're talented. I think you're good. I would like to do something with you. Would you come and like rehearse and do these scenes with me? And he's like, it was awkward because he would have to call up like women that he was auditioning with and saying like, hey, I'm not trying to hit on you. I'm trying to make this thing. Like, can we work together? Because, you know, Robert Townsend is shooting this movie on 35 millimeter, which is very expensive to get at that point. Uh, the director of A Soldier Story is actually giving him his scraps. Like, that's the end. Like, so basically when you were shooting on film, you would uh, like have a six minute mag. And if you did a four minute long scene, you'd have to re- uh, you know, put in another mag. So you would have like two minutes left over. And so the director of a soldier story kept on giving Robert Townsend his film to go make his movie. And Robert Townsend needed to get this right. So he brought all these actors together. Like, and it's a who's who of not only who's famous now, like everybody in this movie is incredibly recognizable. He brought them all together to a rehearsal studio here in LA and started running classes and doing improv and running these scenes. Because when you watch this movie, this movie is not a fancy movie in how it's shot. Most of it is shot in one shot. Um, If you watch it, it's pretty impressive that everyone is perfect in these one shots. I know we talk a lot about it when you see movies like True Detective and these big action set pieces, but when you're doing a comedy like this, not to cut in, not to cut out, like there are things that he is losing because he's keeping such a static shot, but yet it really, really works. And I think it works because not only did everyone buy in and rehearse, but they also really knew the material so well that when they got on set, they didn't waste a minute and they couldn't afford to waste a minute of any of the free film that they got. Well, that's what I really appreciate about this film is because it is his story and it starts with his story. You know, it starts with him like, in his bathroom with his younger brother running through lines, you're introduced to him in character. And then he gets to have that nice moment of being like, that's not my voice. This is my voice. Did you think that was my real voice? That was ridiculous. Oh, you gotta put a knife, man. Oh, you gotta put a knife. 
What's the line? I ain't be got no weapon. Ah. I ain't be got no weapon. <laughs> I'm shocked, Johnny. I am shocked, man. I'm gonna turn. What's the line? I was gonna turn my back and close my eyes and pretend that didn't happen. I'm too cool for that. I'm gonna turn my back and, and, and close my eyes and, and pretend that didn't happen. And I would even go back one step further. This movie started off in black. You don't see anything, right? So you are, I think, in the audience's mind being put into picturing who is saying this. Like we don't even see feet or anything. And then the first shot is like feet in a bathroom. So all of a sudden that's the first kind of twist. And then as it goes up, like it keeps on kind of twisting on you. But even in that moment, he's playing with an audience's expectation. Like what is this movie supposed to be? There's like two posters to it. The poster that I've seen uh, the most used is like his head coming out of a Hollywood clapboard. And it looks really funny, kind of like a, a sketch comedy movie, like Amazon women on the moon. The actual poster was just Robert Townsend with Amory Johnson, and it doesn't look overtly comedic. So as an audience member, he is playing with their expectations in every given way. I also think this movie does a really great job of laying down this simple story. In my memory of it, I thought of this movie much more as a sketch film. Um, and in watching it, it's like, no, this is actually a movie about this man's journey. And I think part of what's so special about it is it's a very positive and probably at this point, based on everything that I see from this film, different portrayal than you see black culture and black life in any other sphere. It doesn't mean that it can't be funny, it can't be interesting, but it's not stereotypical. And I think that the opening couple of minutes of this movie goes out of its way to show you how we're going to break that mold. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think that is what I really respect about Robert Townsend's lens in this movie is it's not just like the the poor Robert Townsend story. It's not just the poor Bobby story. Like right away when he's at his audition, he's showing you how much this affects everybody. He's got like his Robert Townsend players, all those people that he knows through this acting world. And he's being like, look how this happens to this person. Look what happens to this person who's like auditioning for like Latina roles. She has to be tough but sensitive. She knows life, and yet she's very naive at the same time. And of course, she has to be very, very Spanish. We're looking for a very West Side Story kind of look. Yes, Chris, you can do the Spanish. Do you do a Spanish accent? Yes, I do. Could you do uh, maybe a sides for me with that accent? Sure. Johnny, listen to me. You better run, honey, before the police has come. That's very good. Yes, it's very exciting. And it's that way that he expands it, because sometimes... I feel like there's a tendency for people, especially when you're like putting your movie that's about you and your struggle on your credit card to make it only about you and the generosity that he instead chooses to show that this is like an industry thing bigger than him and to give other people chances to shine. I really respect that about this movie because I don't think it had to be done that way. Well, been like it's just easier for me to wander around and have it just be me sulking. And it's not that at all. This is maybe where I might disagree with you because I do think he is showing how the Hollywood shuffle in many respects kind of puts people into boxes. And I think he does a great job of doing that, especially for straight black men. But he doesn't necessarily do that for gay men. And I would also argue he doesn't really do that for women. I think that those are areas in which he kind of forwards a stereotype that I found to be a little interesting in the grand scheme of things. I don't want to like come down on this movie in that way, but it is something where it's like, oh, it's a little myopic because in, you know, at one point you're saying, well, Hollywood puts all of us in this category. But on the other hand, you are also putting people into that category. I think it definitely comes across uh, with, you know, the gay characters in the film. Uh, you know, and I well, think again, yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. not going to say anything about like the gay panic in the film, but I think he treats that actress in the West Side Story scene with a ton of respect. I think he treats all the other actresses you see auditioning for roles with more respect than they're given in the casting room. But, I mean, yeah, I, I think definitely, definitely like with the hairdresser. Yeah. Like this is it lazy, effeminate jokes. Sure. Right. But I don't think that that extends to like all the rest of the actors in the cast even. 
No, and I don't want to go down this path for too long. I just want to say that it's interesting when you are skewering the way that Hollywood puts people in boxes, that you would also then put somebody in a box and not do uh, a different version of it. And it was like, oh, because we're just going for the joke. And I think that's just interesting because we can all be a little bit myopic about our own journey. So in a way, it is his journey. Like he's not experiencing those situations as a gay man in Hollywood. So he can make those jokes because in his mind, he's doing the same thing that the British director or the uh, the white guy is doing about how he should be properly playing a pimp or having a walk. Um, you know, we can all be myopic. Well, yeah. And I think that that's one of the parts of this film that I really also respect, which is that this is not like a vitamin pill film where he's like, here's the problem and here's the solution. Like, I would say that this is not a film with an easy answer or a solution to the problem. You know, like if his whole dilemma, the whole movie is, you know, is it okay for me to chase my dream if my dream involves doing something that is a bad role model for my younger brother? You know, something that like is not positive for the community, something that like as my you know grandmother lectures me, you know, is not good for us. Now, don't get me wrong. I am happy for Bobby. But I don't want no grandson of mine out there trying to act like a street hustler. Black folks got enough negative images. Got my grandson out there add to that minus bullshit out there. Mama! Yes, I said bullshit. Bullshit! Mama, bullshit! you be quiet. That boy can hear you. I don't care. Like, it, that is his big dilemma. You know, like, I have a dream. I really believe in my dream. My dream is to be an actor. This is the only way I can be a star actor. This is the only part I'm given. So much of this movie is him just trying to even get this part in the first place. This part that, like, is not great. And so what I appreciate is, like, he doesn't really get to have everything he wants in this movie. Like, is he going to take the part? Yes or no. Ultimately, he decides no. And when he decides no, the movie isn't like, congratulations, you did it. Now everything will work out because you made the right choice. One of the first things that happens is that, like, all the other actors who are in the scene with him get mad at him. Oh, come on. You're blowing it for all of us. This has got to change. So this is work. Shit, there's work at the post office. Get him off the set. I want him off the set. Get him off the set. Get him out of here. There's always got to be one. In fact, specifically, the guy who's been spending the whole movie telling him not to sell out, telling him not to do this, telling him, you know, that you're doing something really toxic for the community, even as he's sitting next to him for the, uh, at the same audition, you know, this guy right here. Hey, brothers. Only an Uncle Tom would do this shit. They just looking for somebody to sell out. Sell out? The only role they gonna let us do is a slave, a butler, or some street hood or something. Don't sell out, brother. Don't be a butler or a slave. Jesse Wilson. Jesse Wilson, you're next. That's me. Good luck, brother. (laughs) Bobby quits this part. And then that guy who's like, don't sell out, takes the part. And so this movie is kind of saying, like, everybody is making compromises. There is no solution. And the happiest ending that Bobby gets is, like, he does a commercial for the post office. And, like, that's great, a commercial for the post office. It pays him some bills. He does a very good job as a postman. But it's not starring in a movie. You know, right. and so I appreciate that this movie doesn't pull any punches that way. And it just it doesn't just say, here's the right thing to do and everything will be fine if you do it. It's like it sucks. Absolutely. I mean, that ending is really interesting. And there's something embedded even after that ending, which is the rap song. Let's play a clip of that. And the moral to the story is to be or not to be. That is the question I ask of thee To reach new levels and set new heights To take control and rock your life I'm tired of playing hookers and hoes I want much more sophisticated roles Medea, Cleopatra, Antigone Joan of Arc inspired me (laughs) Yeah, that's right I kissed plenty booty to get that part I thought it was my duty But now I feel that in my heart That I have here a brand new start I wrote those words and they're really dry But what I learned today is really live You see, I learned about blacks from TV So please don't be angry with me I thought that was a really interesting point Because how do you break that cycle when 
the writers who are writing the material are using biased and racist and stereotypical things to base their understanding of black culture on. Like, and I think that that was actually one of the most incisive points that the movie makes or, or bluntest points. You know, it's like, oh, no one's bad here. Like this movie isn't about attacking anyone, but it's almost about like skewering, like this is what Hollywood is. This is why it is like this. It's, and it's not even done with malice. It's just done because people don't know any other way. Well, yeah. And one of the things that I find, you know, so wearying and cyclical and frustrating and hopefully optimistic about this movie is that the conversation that he's having here in this movie, 1987, about the ethics of Black actors who need to work, want to work, deserve to work, taking roles that feed into stereotypes and then the NAACP getting mad at him, as they do here, you know, as he has this nightmare idea of like the NAACP, you know, picketing outside of his house. Standing outside the home of Bobby Taylor, a young black actor who took a lead role in a stereotypical movie about street life. The NAACP has picketed this movie, but this is the first time that an actor has ever been picketed. Here to explain is the president of the Hollywood branch of the NAACP, Mr. Jamal Harris. I hope that you're all paid up members of the NAACP Hollywood branch. Thank you. We felt we had to put our foot down by making Bobby Taylor an example. We feel that black actors should not have to accept these stereotype roles, such as crying slaves, tar babies, tar babies jungle bunnies. Jungle and I bunnies? say that as long as black actors play these roles, they'll never play the Rambos until they stop playing the Sambos. Thank you, Mr. Thank Harris. You, Mr. Thank, Harris. You, Mr. Thank you, Mr. Harris. That moment really strikes me when I watch this movie because it is basically a repeat of what happened, you know, 50 years earlier to Hattie McDaniels. Like, nothing changed. Like, that is exactly what happened to Hattie McDaniels when she did Gone with the Wind. And then in 50 years, nobody has figured out a solution. Like, nobody was able to figure out any way that got better. The situation didn't get better. And I find that so depressing to realize, you know, and I'm so glad that he points it out here. But it's also like, man, how does this dilemma get unpinned? It really feels like a moment of there was just absolutely no progress for 50 years. And you even see that in the sense of certain characters in this movie where their dreams have died, right? Like like uh, David McKnight, who played Uncle Ray, you know, who's a former singer who now works at a bar- barbershop, like tells, you know, Bobby, like, you know, keep on following it. Like, you will find a way out. And I think that what this movie kind of posits in a way is you either, you know, leave the business, you do something that you're not happy with, or you take an even harder path that's even rarer to find something that is probably not going to bring you the success that you want, but will give you the respect to feel good about what you're doing. Those are three bad options. I mean, in a way, right? It's like, it's like, well, you can't have it all. And I think that this movie, just by being made, says, no, we can, and we can go and do it the way that we want to do it. And I think that that's, really interesting to think about it and again at that time in 1987 say that there's no room for you because if you decide that you want to just you know do great work well that's going to be small and it may not even pay the bills but you'll feel good and like that's what you're hoping for and if everyone is you know gunning towards that little bullseye chances are you won't work unless other people make opportunities unless you make the opportunity for yourself. Wait, yeah. So if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is that the movie doesn't have a solution, but the movie's existence is the solution. Exactly. He's changing the narrative. And the the mere fact that you are watching it means that it is changing. And I think that that's really, really fascinating. I love that. I mean, because when you read interviews with Robert Townsend, you know, one of the things he really tries to hammer home is that when he was like a young kid growing up in Chicago, he watched the same movies that everybody watched. You know, he would stay in at night. He said his nickname was TV Guide because like he grew up in kind of a dangerous neighborhood. And so his mom didn't want him to go outside that much. So he was always inside the house. He was always watching TV. He was watching whatever was on TV. And so he'd be watching like Humphrey Bogart movies, Errol Flynn, James Cagney, Edward G. Robinson, you know, all the classic tough guys. And that was what he was steeped in. So he would walk around the house, you know, 
imitating Jimmy Cagney and being like, that's who I'm going to be when I grow up. That's the actor I want to be. He would watch like PBS all the time. So when he was like a high school kid and he got a chance to do Oedipus, he was like, I can totally do Oedipus because I've been watching PBS my whole life. And so he was like this great mimic of all of the character actors that he had studied. And that setup, I find to be like just such a a moment of like frustration for him. Like here are all the actors that you grew up thinking you would get to be because you got to practice them. You could got to do them. You could be them and you don't get to be them. Like he's, he's like, as he puts it, you know, when he started auditioning, he would be, he'd just be given like the Butler on page five. And he was like, Cagney never played the Butler. And so this idea of just being like steeped in the great products of a film world that won't make room for you is so frustrating and it's why, like, even though probably my least favorite sequence in the film is, like, the the death of a breakdancer one, the one where he's, like, right. the Sam Spade and blah, 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 blah. And that, okay, that's probably, like, the most sexist one. It's at least, like, getting a chance to watch him be the Bogart that he always practiced being. Like, he dreamed of being Bogart. He never got to be Bogart. He wrote himself his own Bogart. Where were you the day Cookie Head got killed? I was at the hair salon, man. I was getting my curl done. I was there all day. Where? Okay, I wasn't there all day, man. I, afterwards, I went out on Crenshaw and I bought me some hair care products, man. I got some activator, some glycerin, and, and some curl activator, man. I, I went down to the beach. You went down to the beach and you killed cookie-haired chickens, didn't you? No! That kind of saves that skit for me, because otherwise I'm like, this skit is so long, and it just shows up in the middle of the movie and kind of goes nowhere. It only makes sense to me as a chance of him being like, if you won't let me do this, I'm doing it myself. I agree with you. That is a very long sketch that feels like it actually slows down the pace. The movie opens so fast and you're seeing so many things that I feel like in this moment, and the movie is not a very long movie, it's like an hour and 27 minutes, it kind of goes to show you how slight the film is, if that makes sense. Like, the movie is slight, but the performances are great. The point of view is amazing. And in many respects, it serves as a demo reel for all these people to show everything that they can do. So I think in a weird way, uh, you know, the A to B of the story is, is nice. It's simple. Right. And I'm, and again, it really is uplifted by these little moments. These scenes are what you see somebody else do. The fact that like Robert Townsend really, I think like explodes on screen when he is playing these characters. I would, I would argue that Bobby is maybe the least interesting of all the characters that he plays, um, because you can see that he's got a real idea and he can, ha- it can really skewer. Like he's really doing these amazing characters. Yeah. I mean, I kind of like Bobby just in that he's, he's kind of got, I, I'm, I'm, I know I'm just thinking Magic Mike because we just talked about Magic Mike, but I think he's got a little bit of that, like Channing Tatum energy in this. Like I'm an amiable, somewhat screw up with great ambitions. So what am I going to do in my life? I'm like, there's a little bit of shared DNA in these two characters. I like that he doesn't make Bobby too angelic. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's something about him that is very likable, right? Because this is this could be a movie that could be incredibly depressing, right? But there is a sincerity to him that is very sweet. Like to a point where I was like, wow, this is really sincere. That opening sequence that we talked about where he is driving around town, basically getting cheered on by everyone in his life to go to this big audition. He is, it's very much like it's a wonderful life in a way, right? Like he's like Jimmy Stewart. He's got a very, it almost seems like a 1950s attitude. The whole town's got it. And I think that that's also breaking a stereotype in that too, especially in this time to to see just black culture represented in a more well-rounded way, like not in a dark, sad way. But I think that that's that. Yeah, uh, it's like finally a view of Los Angeles a neighborhood in Los Angeles that looks like Los Angeles. It's bright and sunny and not gloomy. Like you think a shootout's going to happen any moment. Yeah, I just enjoy that sincerity. I would say that I enjoy his performances more throughout the film and seeing what his range can be. Uh, because oftentimes Robert is in scenes with somebody else, whether it's John Witherspoon or Keenan, who I think are bringing so much to it. Like he is essentially putting himself in the straight man role for all of the scenes when he is playing Bobby. And maybe that's what I'm reacting to.
spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. I love my cat Tiger, and as my best friend, we speak our own language. What's that? You love your litter. He does because I use Fresh Step Outstretch Litter. It absorbs 50% more waste and odor and requires less changing compared to Fresh Step Multicat. Less changing means more time playing. <laughs> right, Tiger? <laughs> That's a yes. Find Fresh Step Outstretch Cat Litter in the pet aisle. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Certain trademarks used under license from the Procter & Gamble Company or its affiliates. Do you like the scene where he finally gets to talk to Batty Boy and he asks Batty Boy, how do you tell a good script? I want to play that scene, and I just want to talk about, like, the entrance of Batty Boy. Yeah. Because it is so amazing that he pulls up to Winky Dinky Dog in his stretch limo. He has, like, three extra bodyguards for no reason. He's He's got, like, a real prestige in the way that he carries himself. And it's, like, a, an interesting character moment because I feel like he takes this actor who's playing Batty Boy, B.B. Sanders, Brad Sanders is the actor playing him. B.B. Sanders is like his name in the movie. Batty Boy is the character he plays. And he really walks that great line between looking a little bit too pretentious for a guy who's on a sitcom playing a bat, but also the dignity of I have made it and I do have money. You know, he's kind of got that grand dame like air about him. And, it, and I feel like it'd be so easy to tip this a little bit too far in either direction, make him too ridiculous you know, make him too dumb, make him too stuck up. And I like the way that he plays it, even as he gives this advice. I can't believe it's you, man. Mr. Batty, how do you tell a good script? Does your character die in the script? No. Then it's a good script. But what about art? It's not about art. It's about sequel. One film, one, can make an entire career. Just look at me. Betty, Betty, Betty. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of how, like, Butterfly McQueen, you know, the actress who played um, one of the slaves in Gone with the Wind as well, you know, how she really made a point off screen of being like, that is a character. That is not somebody that I am. Like, do not mistake these two things. And really drew such a line in her personal life, like always very careful in her presentation to make it clear that she did not want people, you know, to like blend these images together. And that just feels like an impossible dilemma. And I I feel like probably the movie is just making like a joke that like the baddie boy actor is like being so pretentious. But it did remind me of like what I've read in a lot of biographies of like black actors from the 30s and 40s and kind of how stuck you were. Yeah, no. I, well, I also think that you would assume like, oh, just because this person's on a sitcom, they're going to be this goofy. They don't care. It's like, well, no, he took the part that he could get. Right. I thought there was something in there about that as well. Right. Like it's sort of like you're only getting to see this one side of him because someone's writing that for him. But he has so much more to show the world. But he's stuck in this role that is, you know, very Funny, obviously, like Bobby loves it. His family loves the show. But there is something about it where you don't ever get to see him in a larger sense because society has like locked him into this world. You know, so I think that there is an element of that, too. It's like, oh, well, we assume these people are this because no one else is giving them an opportunity to show any other side of them. I think that that's very true for sitcoms. Yeah. Or we even have that actor here who's like in the audition montage. He's like. I went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and the casting director is just like, you're the worst actor I've ever seen in my life. Right. He's like, can I do these lines in iambic? You know, they have that like back and forth. I do want to say like Lisa Mende, who plays the casting director, is so funny. It's such a ruthlessly like unlikable, unsympathetic, absolutely go for broke performance. And Robert Townsend will say on record that they improvised a lot of that. They brought all of that in there. Everybody was given this opportunity. And again, to even be able to improvise on a movie where you are literally counting the seconds of film that you have is really impressive. As a director, he felt so confident with them that he really worked with them. He created his own acting school in a way to make sure that when they got on set, they would be able to do it. I I just, 
I really love this movie. I watched it as a kid. It really was a movie that made me laugh. I think I understand it so much more now, obviously. I haven't seen it in years. But I would say that as much as we put this movie in historical context and go, well, back in 1987, this is what was going on. It is kind of upsetting to think here in 2023, it's not incredibly far-fetched still. Like, yes, there are more opportunities. There are more things, uh, you know, there, there are more voices being heard, but it's something that we still are wrestling with, whether it's the representation of like how, how many people were behind the camera that weren't white men, how many, you know, opportunities are there out there for, you know, uh, different races and sexualities to show what they can do. Like there's always these end of the year reports. And I just saw a lot of that come out. And, and I think it is as much as you said earlier, like, I can't believe that, you know, it's still been going on. It's still going on to a certain degree. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the reviews that really startled me when I read it was from Roger Ebert. Mm -hmm. And Roger Ebert was like, many of the stereotypes that Townsend protests against haven't been used in Hollywood movies in decades. And his attacks on them will be the first time some viewers have seen these stereotypes at all. And that kind of made me blink because I was like, really? I mean, we basically saw like some of the scenes that are in this movie in Crash. You know, like there's that scene here where they're like, can you be a little bit more? Let's go again. Excuse me, Sydney. Before you do, I have another very good idea. Yeah. Could you tell him to be a little more, you know? Yeah, Bobby. Uh, Bobby, I I need... uh... A little more black, you know what I'm saying? Uh, like, stick your ass out, uh, bug the eyes. You know how they move, you know? Yeah, d- jive ass. Jive ass. Let's slate it. Let's go again. Okay, sorry, sorry, Sydney. Scene 10, Baker 1. And action. I loved it, my brother. He was my main man, baby. That scene is just in Crash, you know, like 15 years later. Like, that clearly hasn't changed. And it made me wonder, like, is there something that happens in the moment of a time period? We're in that exact moment. In that exact moment of 1987, Roger Ebert is able to be like, we're better. Things have gotten better. Things are on the upswing. We just had Spike Lee last year. This movie exists. Surely things have gotten better. And it makes me wonder, do we always in the moment think that things are in the upswing and things are fine? But then in the grand scheme of things, it's a creep, but not like a climb. Yeah, well, I think it, it like, look, we haven't had step and fetch it in a movie in 1987, but what he's talking about, and I think it's not about, like, it's not a direct correlation, right? It's, I think there's two things going on, that the echoes of these characters continue to permeate cinema and film. I would say that Batty Boy is a version of that step and fetch it character as portrayed on screen, like not as the actor portraying that. I would also argue that when you see him play Rambro, uh, like the black Rambo, that even just seeing a black man do that, even in a sketch must have also been like, oh, wow. I like it's, it's putting different images in our head, right? It's like, oh, I've never thought that I could see somebody do Humphrey Bogart. I never thought that, uh, you know, step and fetch it is, uh, still around, but they are. And it's like, I think what this movie does really pointedly is show both sides. It's like, it's not just showing, uh, you know, one type of character and, and how people are forced to play them. It's also showing like, what if you gave me a chance to do more and to show more and I can do it here in these funny moments and you'll laugh at those funny moments, but you're also probably thinking like, Oh, why haven't we had a black Rambo? I mean, and I think it could go back to, I mean, there's so much more, we could talk about when we go into, you know, black exploitation films. But I think that those kind of live in a different world. I would also argue that, like, as much as we're talking about Robert Townsend, you know, forwarding this idea of independent film, you'd have to look back and and look at, like, somebody like Melvin Van Peebles, who did, like, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, you know, which is another kind of uh, movie that, you know, he wrote, co-produced, scored, edited, and, uh, you know, directed and starred in. You know, it's like it, like... It was a movie that he made because he felt like he needed to say something about this business, this industry, right? You know, uh, and I and I feel like so he's following in the footsteps, making a movie he wants to make. I, I just think that like what this movie does is a it's almost like a, a sampler platter of showing what he can do and also 
the roles that he and everybody else in this movie are subjugated to. Oh, that's interesting. In a way, it sounds like you're describing it kind of like a vision board. Yeah, like, I, I think, like, yeah, I don't right. Know if you watch like the 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 dunk competition this weekend. Uh, yes, I did, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, like our former Laker, who I wish we still had as a Laker, Mac McClung, won the dunk competition. As context for non-jock nerds, uh, Mac McClung is like, a six foot two guy. He kind of looks like he should be playing like a newspaper boy in a Jimmy Cagney movie. Um, six foot two guy, G leaguer keeps getting like signed to two way contracts at best, you know, a f- almost a foot shorter than some of the guys competing in the duck, the dunk competition. Absolutely destroyed it. One was amazing. And what he said when they interviewed him afterwards, he said, he said something like, I visualized that all of this would happen. So being in the moment, it's actually not that surprising. He was like, if you, he like put himself in the image of imagining himself doing these great dunks, getting three, three sets of perfect 50 scores from all of the judges in the whole night. He got 149 from Lisa Leslie and that was it. But it was like, he put himself in the vision board of doing it. He imagined it happening. And then in the moment he was like, so it happened. And I, I like to imagine that this then is, is Robert Townsend's vision board on his vision board is a world where he will win, you know, the best actor Oscar, not just once, not just twice. He's going to get to win it multiple times because dreaming for multiple wins is part of the win. You know, multiple wins. This is really a surprise. Uh, my fifth Oscar. I'm going to tell you, I didn't think I was going to win tonight. And against the competition, Redford, Newman, Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, uh, Meryl Streep, I didn't think I had a chance. And I just want to say tonight, we're all winners. Because that's the big part. Not even just like, I'm happy with one. I want all of them. Why shouldn't I be able to have all of them? Yeah, and you get to see him also explore these other ideas, like this black superhero, which he then goes on to make Meteor Man uh, many years later. Uh, But I do think that this is a movie or this is a, a constant debate in Hollywood, how do you let people see you for something different than what they have labeled you? And there can be experiences of that on a very basic level. Oh, I played this type of a character in a successful something, and now everybody wants me to play that. Uh, then there's a version of it where I am this. This is my sexuality, but it has nothing to do with who I am or what I bring to the table, right? It It's a constant idea of like you ca- you have to show people that you can be different, that you can change because people can't imagine that. And I think that that is ultimately at the bottom line of this movie is people can't imagine seeing a black man do all of this stuff at this point. And I'm going to now show you, I'm going to do it in a more mainstream way. I'm going to make a movie for black audiences. I think this is a movie that also, or maybe an idea that also you could, you could, drive to somebody like Tyler Perry too. is like, I'm going to make my own thing. I'm going to tour around with stage shows. I'm going to cast my people. I'm going to do, I'm going to make what I want to make. I think that there's a lot of inspiration to take from, you know, the only way that people are going to view you differently is if you take control. And the fact that this guy could take control and, and do something is incredible inspiration. And I think that that's more than anything why this movie should be continually celebrated. It's a very interesting film that is incredibly mainstream, too. Part of me feels like Robert Townsend didn't get the full career that this movie promised. Mm. You know, it it feels like it feels like he actually really stayed committed to what he thought was best, you know, for himself, for the community that he felt like he was representing. So like when the 90s show up and suddenly, you know, everything is like violent movies, violent movies about gangs, violent movies about LA neighborhoods. You know, he is among the artists who's like, I don't want to make those movies. I want to make the PG film for black audiences. Like, I don't want to represent that story. Like I want to represent, you know, I want to do Meteor Man. I want to do BAPS. I want to do stuff that doesn't, I want to do the five heartbeats. I don't want to play into that. And, you know, when I was going through like everything he did in this time, one of the moments that really struck me was he came up with his own TV show for a while, you know, like the Robert Townsend show. Yeah. And there was this moment that like, I clicked on the video on YouTube because I was like, well, of course I've got to see this. And it was Robert Townsend uh, introducing MC Hammer 
as if you're saying to me, Amy, of course, I need to hear Robert Townsend introduce MC Hammer. Don't worry, I am going to play this clip, even though it is mostly music. But what I want you to picture is that not only is MC Hammer and his dancers out there dancing their hearts out, really dancing. It's like kind of, I didn't, I didn't think I forgot that MC Hammer was so ripped, really dancing. But Robert Townsend is out there dancing just as hard as them, really having a blast. And he's doing it in his Humphrey Bogart trench coat and his fedora. And it feels like, man, at this moment in time, Robert Townsend, you did it. You did it. The man who could turn this mother out, ladies and gentlemen, M.C. Well, Amy, he wears that uh, that fedora a lot. I remember it, and I have such a clear memory of it from these HBO specials that he did called, like, Robert Townsend's Partners in Crime. And it was basically a stand-up special where he had people like Paul Mooney and, uh, you know, Keenan on there. It was a great showcase to show off all this amazing talent. And I think we've talked a lot about how Robert Townsend really positioned himself in this movie, but he really did position everybody else too like when you look at the cast of his films his stand-up specials his talk show his tv show like he really brought in a giant community of people that i think are household names now oh are you talking about also the one and only queen bee from when he directed carmen a hip hopera starring beyonce which yes i pulled a clip from that yes i heard so much about you hopefully nothing too bad Makai Pfeiffer, Beyonce Knowles, Mos Def, Rod Digga, DeBrat, Lil Bow Wow, Wyclef Jean, Jermaine Dupri, Carmen, the original hip hopera. Go! Look for it on DVD and VHS. And you know, one of the things that he does in his career that's interesting and goes on to what you're saying about trying to position himself as a gatekeeper for the world that he wants to see is, you know, he runs BET for a while. Like, you know, he is a creative liaison for BET. And I think that that's really interesting. Like the roles that he's picked, the way that he has gone about his career, he's incredibly relevant. And I think that people may have wanted myself included as a kid to see him explode like Eddie Murphy. And there's my, that's my own uh, racist point of view uh, in a way of just going like, well, he's funny. He's in that movie. He should be the next Andy Murphy. But it's also saying like, well, no, he delivered a message in a funny way, got that success, helped people get into a bigger world. And he's continuing to do different things. I think that in a weird right, way, I'm just putting him in the impact, even if it wasn't like the impact I was picturing. Like right. when you see this, you're like, put that guy in every movie, give him the Bobby dream. Exactly. But oh my gosh, what if the message of Hollywood shuffle came true? And he doesn't get the full dream, but he gets to do something else. And he gets to do it across the board. Like he said that, you know, his career's all been about timing. And, you know, if Meteor Man was a little bit later, it may have made more money. You know, uh, the same way that, you know, he has this, you know, the five heartbeats, I think should be talked in the same sentence as uh, that thing you do. I mean, there's such a resurgence for that thing you do. Or even like a movie like Dreamgirls, like exploring the like not skewering it, but showing that side of what that business was like as well. You know, can you have, you know, a successful career where you balance art and commerce? And I would argue that because his other films may have not been as financially successful, he wasn't able to continue to make these movies. So he moved to a different direction. He tried different things to continue to get that voice out there because at the end of the day, all people want is the success story. And that's and that's Hollywood no matter who you are. If you're making money, you get to make another one. I think on the show we talk a lot about does this movie need to exist? Is there another film out there that does it better? And I think that there might be better comedies, even though this is very, very funny. Um, I think that there might be better takedowns of Hollywood. But what this movie does and why I would argue for its, its inclusion in any sort of list is because 
what he did, when he did it, and how he did it was not only ahead of its time, but it also changed the industry. And it still holds up. Yes, there are things that you might want to change. There are things that, well, maybe he passed the buck a little bit with this kind of uh, culture, but none of that takes away the ripples. And this is a movie that has giant ripples. I think you can say you could draw it to somebody like Robert Rodriguez, who was making movies on a shoestring budget that he wanted to tell. It It really is, I think, a model for what independent film is and getting original voices out there. And many people owe their careers, white, black, Latino, whatever, to Robert Townsend just being able to say, hey, I'm going to take control of my own career and show you the way I want to be seen? Well, two things. One, I feel like that is a gauntlet for us to do El Mariachi. I mm. would really love to do El Mariachi this year. What I do you think? Love to do, I would love to do that. I also would love to do Sweet Badass's song, too, as we mentioned that. Like, it may be interesting bookends on both sides. Yeah, I accept that, Rose, as well. Um, and the other movie that gets mentioned here that I was like, oh, we really need to do it, that comes in his segment where he is doing Sneaking in the Movies, his parody of Siskel and Ebert. Oh, yeah. And now, to recap the movies we saw, we both gave thumbs down to that classical shit, Amadeus Miscellarius. We disagreed on Chicago Jones. I gave it a thumbs down, but he liked it, that bullshit. Dirty Larry, the movie where the crooks wait for Larry to go in his jacket, pull out a big-ass gun. What they think he was looking for? His American Express card? Damn. We both gave Dirty Larry the finger. The last movie we really enjoyed. It was full of stereotypes, but it was well-directed, and we thought the combining of the zombie pimps and the street holes was brilliant. We gave it the serious high five, and that recaps all the movies we saw. In that clip, he mentions a movie that we have been talking about doing because it was on the original AFI list. It got kicked off the AFI list. Is it finally also time this year to do Amadeus? You know, I was thinking about that and watching that little clip in the film made me cringe because my mom loved watching that movie and I felt like I was always forced to watch Amadeus. I don't know why if, like we owned it or we had something. I saw it so many times, but I would love to look back on that film. I know there are some really great performances there, uh, but I, I may have to watch that one out of my brain in a good way. I, I'm willing to accept that as well. Okay, good. I like this. This makes me excited for the year 2023. I agree. 2023 is, uh, is going to be pretty awesome. But now, Amy, what are we going to talk about next week? I think it is time to talk about this year's crop of Oscar movies. I think it is time to really get into our roundup of 2022. What happened? Let's prep. Let's do all the talking as we can head into another round of Oscar voting in which your ballot will beat mine. And I will be so upset because part of the problem, once again, is that I have watched the shorts and I have my favorites and I cannot vote against the ones that I do not believe will win. Well, a year of dicks is definitely going to win. Year of dicks is so good. Did you I see know. year of dicks? Yes, <gasps> I did. I'm like, that. that is one that I feel like we might actually get a good win. But I, well, we'll talk about all this. I have a lot of theories <laughs> about the Oscars. The only movie I haven't seen, and I guess maybe I'll have to watch before the next uh, episode, is White Noise. It feels like that movie doesn't even exist, oddly enough. Oh, I'm excited for you to white, watch White Noise. I kind of liked it. I have one that I have to catch up with myself. Although, for you, I did track down and I did watch Two Leslie, the Andrea Riseborough movie. Oh, so I'm excited wow. to talk about that. All right. Very excited to hear all about that. All right. So next week, we're going to talk a lot about Oscar films. We want to hear from you. You can go on our Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. You go to the unspooled section. What do you think missed a nomination that deserved one? Uh, what do you think deserves to win? We'll kind of incorporate all of that in our big talk about these Oscar films. I can't wait to do that with you, Amy. I know. It's always one of my favorite episodes of the year. They're all my favorite episode, Paul. I agree, Amy. Every episode is a joy. And you know what? You should be joyful that we're waiting this long to do the Oscar films because there's been plenty of time for you to catch up. Pretty much every Oscar film is available right now. I feel like it is all out there. You can watch Plain. That is nominated for Best Picture, right, Amy? The Gerard Butler uh, movie? Best picture, best director, best actor, best oh, wow. plane, all of it, all the way down the line. All the way there. So you could you could really watch all of these. Uh, but we'll we'll kind of catch up if you have not seen them and kind of tell you which ones to watch next week as well. All right. That is it for this week's Unspooled. We will see you next week for an Oscar recap. But a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. 
Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the Unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen tests on Stitcher Premium and for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show. You can head on over to unspooledpod.com. Spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. My cat Rachel is the silliest cat I know. One time, she played inside a paper bag for three hours. What a mystery. But I'm glad her health isn't. Thanks to the color-changing litter from Fresh Step Crystal's Health Monitoring Litter. This premium color-changing litter has pH-activated crystals that can help me detect potential illness early. That makes it easy for me to stay on top of her health and well-being. I may not understand all of Rachel's silly quirks, but I can keep up with the important things. Find Fresh Step Crystals Health Monitoring Litter at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company.